Um, what we want to get started with is in Mark chapter 16, if you've been joining us the last few weeks, actually the last year and a half, we've been going paragraph by paragraph through the gospel of Mark. And we've finally come to the very end of Mark. And this chapter we've kind of, in the last chapter, we've kind of skipped large sections. But what we want to do today is just kind of get an overview of the entire chapter and look at the last few verses of Mark chapter 16. As we wrap up this entire study with the 50th message and Bible study that's out of the Gospel of Mark. And so let's join, let's go joining together and let's head into Mark chapter 16. I got to thinking this week when I was uh, preparing and going through this material of a couple of situations that happened, real life experiences to people who were from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania several years ago. Both these families decided to go on vacation and the one headed down or headed up to Niagara Falls where they were going to spend the week with their family and visit that area. And as they were walking one day along the, uh, the river upstream from the falls, their nine-year-old little boy was playing close to the edge and slipped on some rocks and down over the bank he went into the river. They tried, they tried, but he got caught into the stream and he ended up going over the falls and losing his life. Another family, both from Philadelphia area, they went down to the Jersey Shore. They were spending vacation that same summer down there and they had rented, they had a room in a hotel that had an outdoor volleyball court and it was lit at night. Their 17-year-old son was out there playing and during a break in the game he leaned against the, the lit pole that was out there lighting the court and there was some faulty wiring that all of a sudden caused that pole to be filled with electricity. Their 17-year-old died just instantly. Can you imagine going on vacation and coming home with a casket? What a horrible experience. What an awful, traumatic time. That's the way the disciples felt as we begin into this section of Scripture. Jesus has died. They are just traumatized. But then we come into Mark chapter 16 where we come to Sunday morning. And as we go through Mark chapter 16, it is a tremendous passage filled with encouragement but also challenge. Now, as we do it, I need to take a couple minutes here and I need to do a little bit more of some explanation through this passage. So bear with me as what we try to do is we need to back up and give you a little bit more of some of the factual background because some of you are sitting with uh, Bibles that all of a sudden in Mark chapter 16 you've got some footnotes, you've got some question marks about parts of this chapter. Should they be in the Bible or shouldn't they be in the Bible? Now that may throw some of you to say, are you kidding? Is there such a debate? There is. There's a debate, but some people saying, well, actually, the original should only go up to chapter, uh, up to verse 8. Some others will say, no, it should go up to verse 14. That's a very small number. But then there are others who say that it goes all the way to the end of what we have, a lot, several of us in our Bibles, all the way to verse 20. And so the two primary uh, groups that have been going on for generations and generations in discussion and in debate is Mark 16 is is it 1 through 8 or 1 through 20? And the arguments aren't based upon some heretical belief or some purposeful design of destroying Scripture. There are good scholars who have spent time researching and have come to conclusions. Now, their conclusion may disagree with yours or it may disagree with my conclusion. I don't know where you hold on this. I personally will do the entire chapter. But the arguments are based on some uh, historical facts that I want to just share with you briefly so that you can wisely read your Bible or if you read commentaries you'll understand why some of the commentaries stop at verse 8. And the reason that some of that some of those folk do that is those who hold to that view will point out this that two of the oldest com of the completed manuscripts uh, the, the entire New Testament two of the oldest what's called Vaticanus as well as Sinaiticus they stop at verse 8. And so some will say, well, those are from the early centuries and they probably got it right because they're the earliest. And then they'll point out that some of the early church fathers, Eusebius, for example, Jerome, for example, they both wrote in their commentaries that the passage, the, the text stopped at verse 8. Then you have this discussion that is a valid, valid observation. The last 12 verses include several words and a style that doesn't fit the previous 
uh, bulk of Mark. And they say that if Mark had written, why did all of a sudden he introduce in this small section so many new words that he never used throughout the gospel prior to this point? Those are worth answering. Those are worth observation. And those individuals are trying to make some uh, accurate conclusions based on those facts. Now, I don't agree with them. I think it goes all the way to the end. And the reasons are both of those two ancient manuscripts, those earliest complete manuscripts. Both of them do something that's very unusual. At the end of verse 8, they leave a blank before they pick up on the other portions of Scripture. Uh, A large blank as if there should have been some text inserted, as if they were thinking that there is the strong possibility that the other 12 verses belong here as well. Earlier church fathers, earlier than Eusebius and Jerome that we just mentioned, some who are closer to the very original writings. They make it very clear that these last verses were considered scripture in their mind. That they quoted them as such. As well, all, most all the manuscripts from 500 on, they are quoting this portion of scripture as valid. And all the manuscripts from 600 AD on, they conclude that this is definitely part of scripture and include it. So we also have that discussion with, uh, when we look at the text, if we stopped at verse 8, it seems to be very abrupt. It's not like the other Gospels that have a conclusion to the book. This one would all of a sudden stop just abruptly where it says they, they, they were afraid and wouldn't give any data further. And so that brings it to a good conclusion. Plus, um, the, for the change in style, the change in words, if some other author contributed, that would not be the first time in books in the Bible where somebody else concluded or wrote the final ending to that book. That happened in other Old Testament books as well, so that doesn't seem to be, in my mind, a major problem. And as well as we read through the section this morning, we're going to make the observation that what is included, especially in those last 12 verses, was also in the other Gospels. So we have the conclusion that what Mark puts in this section, none of it is totally unique to Mark at all that would cause us any problem or any difficulty if it being inserted in there. In fact, let me show you how we do this. As we read through this chapter, notice other books have the same thing. I'm starting with verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint Jesus' body in the tomb. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said amongst themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid, or King James' uh, language, affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter, and goeth before you, and that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now in that section that some might question, we read these verses and these accounts that are uh, complementary to other Gospels. Verse 9, 10. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And when she went and told them that had been with him, as they mourned, they wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. So we have that section. We have the section where they, the initial reaction of the disciples, like the other Gospels mentioned, they didn't believe. We pick up in verse 12, and after that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. Luke chapter 23 or 24 talks about this section where there's two men on the road to Emmaus and they went and told it unto the residue or the rest of the disciples, neither believed, believed they them. And then we have the next verses that talk about how the initial reaction, they were doubting, and Jesus comes into the room and he rebukes them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And then we have the next section, which complements the other Gospels, where Jesus makes his great commission. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every 
every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And then we have the last couple verses that talk about his ascension. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. Amen. It concludes. And so we have at this, this complementary text, we have Jesus wrapping up his earthly ministry and going into heaven. Now, when he wraps it up, he gives them that commission. He gives them that order. Now that he's gone, he's going to say, you guys, you need to get going, as our title suggests. And what he does is he tells them some very important information in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 that I'd like to look at. And I want to make a couple observations out of those verses. The first observation is this. The Lord wants you and me to share the gospel. That's very clear. He's saying in these verses, very simply, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, which means you and me, as well as those disciples in the early age, they were to go out and get out the word of God to other individuals. Now, as we examine this passage a little bit more in depth this morning, let's use all the interrogatives that you would use, the who, what, why, where, when, how. Let's answer every single one of them as we go through these verses and then just see what the conclusion is and where it leads us. Let's start off with the, what are we to do? According to this text, we are to preach the gospel. Now, don't be mistaken. I know that what I do is preaching. Uh, well, it's supposed to be. You may question it, but it's supposed to be preaching. That is not what the word originally meant, to preach the way I'm doing it right now. It meant just to announce. It had the idea to proclaim. It had the idea of to relay a message. If we were going to bring it into modern day, it would be like an answering service. Getting a message from a customer, a, a client, a patient, getting that info and passing it on. It would be like a news reporter getting the data and then giving the news over the radio, over the internet. It would be like when I was in, uh, in junior high and senior high school, we would start off every day, get to our homeroom, and then somebody would come over the public address system and they would make the announcements for the day. They'd talk about the, what the lunch was going to be, they'd talk about certain clubs that were meeting. Whatever was pertinent, they'd make that two, three, four minute, five minutes of announcements. They were K-Rexing. They were declaring, they were sharing some information that was pertinent to everybody in that room. And so that whole idea of preaching has the idea of you announcing, you sharing, you giving important information. Now the information in this text, the what that we're supposed to be talking about is the gospel. Literally, the good news. That good news that would be all about Jesus' incarnation, his ministry, his life, his example, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. His mission of coming to save his people from their sins. His miss mission of proclaiming, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's the good news that we have. And what we understand from this, that our major mission as a church body, as individual believers, our major mission is to address the spiritual needs and tell individuals that Jesus Christ saves, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but the by them. That means that when we gather... When we do this type of ministry, our main mission is not to entertain you. Oh yeah, we enjoy doing the pranks. We enjoy doing the funny stuff. We enjoy having some of, the, some of that humor back and forth. And we enjoy when we get together. The, the opportunities to be able to laugh together. But our main mission uh, is supposed to be proclaiming the gospel which I'm so thankful that many of you do on a regular basis. I'm so thankful that as a church body, you've kept us on that track and on that target of making sure our main mission. Now, this week we did another ministry. We tried to address the physical needs of individuals by providing hundreds of boxes of food for individuals free. And that's good. That, that was a great thing and something that we should be considering and doing on a, on a basis of meeting needs. But our primary mission is even when we do that, let's try to get out the gospel 
gospel, which we did this week, via the literature that we gave as we gave out the boxes. And so we understand that what we are to be doing is we are to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's ask another important question that most of you can answer right away. Who is to do this? Well, if you look at the text, it's literally in the plural when he says, go ye, or go you, plural. When he talks about preaching, it's a plural verb. You all do this. So every single one of us is supposed to be doing this. All of the followers of that day, all of the followers of this time, no matter what our age, what our status, no matter what our gender, our job, no matter what we are involved in, we're to be having in the back of the mind that I am a representative, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, that people in the world around me need some good news, especially at this time, and that I'm supposed to be delivering that good news. Let's ask another interruption. When are we to be doing this? Now, you look at the verse, it's the idea very clearly it's to be done continuously. How do I know that? He says, you preach, and literally the verb is, you keep doing this over and over and over again. Go into all the world and keep on, keep on, keep on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling people about Jesus Christ being the one who can provide hope, joy, peace, and confidence in uncertain times. In fact, we're to make this a regular part of our life. Not just once in a great while, not just once when we have, when in, a, in a couple years when we have revival meetings, or not, not just when camp comes along, not just when all of a sudden we do the reenactment, and that's my only time in the year that I'm going to be involved in getting out the gospel. No, my friend, Jesus Christ is saying you and I are to make this a regular part of our weekly habits, our weekly exercise, of our, of our, our responsibilities, like you go to work to take care of your family, like you clean your house, like you go out shopping and do those things that are necessary, it is uh, incumbent upon us to do this necessary task regularly of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we ask this question, we say, okay, the when on a regular basis, where are we to do this? Uh, You've already got it. Jesus wants his disciples to do this anywhere, everywhere. When he makes that comment, go ye into all the world, the world has the idea of just wherever there are lost people. You go out, you share the gospel, you go and you, you interact with them to give them out the word of God. In fact, he reiterates that when he says, preach it to every creature, that is every person that you come across, that you and I are supposed to be sharing the word of God without prejudice, with, without uh, exception. We're to share the, God with, with, uh, the word of God without omission. It's to be a part of our life that we are doing this with all peoples that we have contact with on a regular basis to all people groups. That we aren't supposed to just say, okay, I'm going to only share it with people of the same skin tone as I. I'm only going to share it with people who are related to me. I'm only going to share it to those within my household confines. Outside of that, I'm not going to share the gospel. No, that would be a violation of the command that Jesus Christ has given you to be his follower. I was reading a historical biograph, uh, uh, biography about a woman that I had heard about in the past but didn't know much about her. Her name is Selena Shirley. Her husband was the descendant of the, Lox, the Loxleys who became the Earls of Huntington, that is Robin Hood's, supposedly the Robin Hood, his, uh, one of his descendants. And her husband and her were very, very wealthy. Well, as a young woman, after she was married, she heard the gospel. And she responded to the gospel and got born again. Her family, her friends, her many noble uh, relatives and in the social circle, they thought that she had all of a sudden become unbalanced. And so they communicated with her. They tried convincing her. They had others of the, of the clergy come and talk with her and try to dissuade her from this what they called fanaticism for Jesus Christ and being born again and reading the Bible. And she hung fast to her faith. And she kept on sharing the word of God. In fact, eventually her husband got saved shortly before he passed away as a young man. And she continued in her zeal of serving the Lord. And she made it a part of her life that she was sharing the word of God with all of those who worked in her household, her servants, as well as those in that social circle that she was involved in in the early 1800s. 
She even one day tells the account of how she wanted to share the gospel with one of the men that was hired recently to take care of the horses in the stable. So she went out there and she's talking with him and uh, out in the barn where the countess wasn't supposed to be, but she had a burden for the man. She's sharing the gospel. It wasn't in the barn, but next to the barn. And uh, the man, he was polite, but he didn't want to make a decision for Christ. The next day, she went out and she wanted to talk to her gardener. And as she started talking to the gardener, he says, I did that yesterday when you were speaking to the, the guy at the stable. She says, you weren't there. He says, yes, I was. Right on the other side of the wall where you were standing and talking, I was working with some of the flower beds and I listened and I prayed right there and asked Christ to be my Savior. This woman had a zeal for all classes. In fact, she got involved with George Whitfield. She helped fund a lot of his ministry. She helped fund and start some 42 different churches that preached the gospel there in that area of, of England. She started a practice where she would hold opportunities and bring in for tea and bring in for meals. A lot of those who were of her social class, a lot of the nobility and even some who were in the king's court. And when she would have them come in, she made it a regular practice in a polite fashion to share her testimony. She even invited Whitfield on multiple occasions to come and speak to those crowds, and a number of the gentry responded and got saved, as well as a number of her servants in her household. Why? Because she was concerned about people. She didn't have a prejudice to the different classes. She wasn't afraid of sharing the gospel, but felt burdened to preach the gospel to every creature as best she could as on a personal witness and helping ministries to get started. You know, when we start asking the questions, we have to answer, how are we to do that? This verse tells you how. The verse says that what we're supposed to do is preach the gospel. That is simply declare the message, declare what Christ has done for you. But there's more to this. There is a phrase that, as we read where it says, go ye, in the original language, it's much more full than just go out. It has the idea of after you have gone and are keeping on going. It has that idea in that, in that perfect tense that you, are, you have done this. By the way, that means Jesus assumes that you are doing this. He is not commanding you. He is assuming that you as a teenager are sharing the gospel with some of those other teens that you interact with on a sports team when there's sports or in the neighborhood or at your school. He says, after you have gone, keep on doing this, keep on doing this. Jesus is assuming that his disciples are going to interact with others so as to share the gospel. Now that leads me to some very challenging thoughts, very convicting thoughts. You see, you and I, we can very quickly fall into some complacency by making some mistakes, by assuming some errant conclusions. And it frequently happens. It happens to individuals. It happens to churches. It happens to preachers. It happens to teachers. It happens to parents. It happens to all levels of Christians that we start assuming or making some thoughts to excuse ourselves by doing this type of thing. We cannot hope and pray that the gospel will get to the masses and to those we know by sitting back and doing nothing. And yet some of us do that. We pray, we hope that our relatives hear the gospel, but we're not taking it to them. We pray, we hope that Lebanon hears the gospel. Lord, please work that the people can hear the gospel, but are we doing something to actively get the gospel out to them? Sometimes we make this mistake, and we ought not. We ought not to leave the responsibility of sharing the gospel to others. We'll leave it to the pastor. We'll leave it to the Sunday school teacher. That's the job of the deacons. You know, every one of those I just mentioned, that is their responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ. My position does not exempt me from being a witness. But every one of us are supposed to be a witness. Every one of us should be carrying out the gospel. We should not leave it to the others. We should not come to a point in our life where we think we're in retirement age and all of a sudden we'll leave it to other individuals. We are not to make the mistake of sitting back and waiting for the lost to come to us. That, oh yes, if they're hungry, they'll come and ask me. No, Christ assumes that you who are following him are actually going out and making effort to contact, 
to interact, to permeate your neighborhood, your relationships, your workplace, and sharing the gospel with them. You cannot look at Acts chapter 16 and say, oh, well, this, the jailer came running in. And when he came running in, he says, oh, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and then we're going to just wait for jailers around us to come and ask us that question. Listen, friend, Paul and Silas were involved with proclaiming the gospel through song to other people in that prison prior to that point. You need to be through song, through testimony, through joy, through peace, through verbal uh, sharing your, your life story. So you need to be sharing the gospel with others and not sitting back and waiting for them to come to you. We cannot, we cannot say we're sharing the gospel here when we gather by singing and having testimonies. It is not completing this commission by Christ, when we gather and within the four, the four walls of this building, we share the gospel amongst ourselves and say, we've done it. Or at your home, which is a great place to share the gospel like it is here. But we cannot be content with talking about the gospel within the four walls of our house and saying we've done the job by just talking and rehearsing what Christ has done for us. We need to go out we need to carry it to those who are in need. We should never, we should never make this mistake, and yet it's easy to fall into. I am so busy. I am so busy with my college courses. I am so busy with planning a wedding. I am so busy with getting, getting my job and work done at home. I am so busy doing all my homework and doing the homeschooling for the kids. I am so busy with just doing what I need to do to take care of getting my house in order, my yard in order this spring. I don't have time to share the gospel. Really? Really? You're going to stand before Christ and say, I didn't have time to do. You just gave me too much work to obey your command. Friend, you and I ought never to come to the conclusion to say that we are just too busy to help out with the souls of people. I've told you before about a true story that in 92, the L.A. police took it on the chin because of what happened. There was a parking uh, meter officer who was going along the road and he saw this large vehicle parked there and he gave him a ticket because they had uh, exceeded their time of parking there. And he even walked over to the driver's side and put it under the windshield wiper and moved on. In fact, that already happened that one day. It happened a couple days. And inside that car, slumped over the steering wheel, was somebody who had been shot to death. That was visible to the parking officer, but they were just too busy doing their job of giving out tickets that they missed seeing that a murder had taken place. Something much more important than handing out tickets. You know what? Sometimes we get so busy handing out the tickets in our life, doing the little things, we miss seeing the big needs of people around us. You need to get out the gospel. I need to get out the gospel and not get so busy that we don't have time to be a witness. We ought not to say, hey, listen, I'm retired, and I've, I've done the school teaching. I've done the Sunday school teaching. I've shared the gospel in days gone by. Now I'm retired, and I've also retired from sharing the gospel. Where does Jesus say that now that you're over a certain age, you don't have a responsibility to get out the gospel? You do. I do. As long as he gives us breath, we are to be sharing that word. We are never to be so content with reaching our immediate circle and, and community that we forget that there are people that we need to reach beyond our world, beyond our house, our community, our commonwealth. We have a mission, a worldwide mission, and a responsibility to help others who might go physically and we support them to get this gospel into all the world. Although we are to separate from the world, and I, and I believe that with my whole heart, that we are to separate, not get involved with the language, not get involved with the, uh, with the ways of entertaining that are ungodly, not get involved with lifestyle that is unholy and ungodly. Although we are to separate from the world, we are, according to this verse, we are not to become so separated that we have no contact or interaction with people who are lost. And we claim that we can't share the gospel because we have no unsaved friends. 
You and I are to be developing those friendships with individuals in our community, our workplace. We're to have some interaction with the world. How can we be salt? How can we be light if we never have some type of contact with people who need the gospel? Jesus wants us to carry out that gospel. We are not supposed to be living such holy lives that we have no time to share God's message with those for whom he died. That isn't a holiness. That is a pseudo-piety that some of us have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. And we are missing the responsibility that Jesus has given us to getting out the gospel by not interacting to a degree with those who need the word of God. You and I don't want to make that mistake. We want to be giving out the Word of God on a regular basis. So we know we're supposed to be personally sharing the Word of God. We, that means to going into this world, we need to be creative. We need to figure out how can we interact with lost people. We're not going to go to the bars with them. We're not going to drink with them. We're not going to cuss and curse with them. We're not going to do those things. That would be, that would be you know, a, a slap in the face of Jesus Christ. We're to live holy, but we're supposed to interact with them. How are we going to do that? How can we initiate conversations? How can we creatively share the Word of God in a, in a more impacting fashion? There was one man who was an ophthalmologist down in Texas, Jack Cooper. And he had this trite saying that he would use on his eye chart that it was just purchased by you know, any standard uh, eye company. All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. And he'd have people. He thought, well, listen, if they can put those cliche fa- uh, phrases up, I can do one like this. God loves you and he has a plan for your lives. He said time and time again, after he treated patients, and then he would use this as a follow-up, people would read that, and they, they would give him the letters, and then they'd read it, and he said, I had more opportunities to start talking about Jesus Christ and giving out gospel literature right in my office, as people would all of a sudden respond to that idea, God loves you and has a plan for your life. He was creative. He did it with, took some initiative. I was reading a story about a businessman in Chicago. His name is Erling Olson. And he wrote in Moody Monthly Magazine about something that happened in his workplace. They were in one of the large buildings there that had multiple floors. So they had an elevator that they, that they were able to have an elevator operator. And a young lady was doing that. Well, one day he had a business meeting with a fellow Christian, an older gentleman by the name of Peter Stamm. And he had come. They had conducted their business. And Stamm was leaving. He got to the elevator. And Stam was the type of individual that he would, he would pray every day, Lord, help me to be sensitive to the opportunities to share the gospel. So he gets in the elevator and he sees that it's just her and him. And so as they're going down, he says to the elevator operator, as they get to the bottom, he says, young lady, he says, I'm going to pray that your last trip is not one down, but one up. The, the girl was so shocked by it, she swallowed her gum. And she says, well, what are you talking about, mister? And he shared, he says, well, I'm a believer. I'm, uh, I've gotten saved, and I know that I'm going to heaven because of Jesus Christ. And I want you, when your life ends, that I want you to make sure you're going to heaven with me, not going down into, into hell. He said, and then she started asking questions. He said, listen, there's a friend of mine in this building by the name of Erling Olson. He's on such and such a floor. Why don't you go and talk to him if you have more questions? In fact, she was so curious that very evening, she came back after she got off and she talked with Mr. Olson, prayed and got saved. Little comments, little statements. This week, I've already mentioned that what we wanted to do was try to help out our community. Help out those within our community in some way, shape, fashion, but also to get out the Word of God. And so what we did is we bought 500 boxes, pre-boxed items of 35 to 40 pounds of food that we paid a cost for because we were able to give them just $7 per box. And so what we did is we made sure that we announced it when you invited people, some of you sent individuals over, and with every box of food, or every car, I should say, and every individual that we gave out, we also gave out a packet, a packet that thanked them for coming, a packet that within explained some things like this ministry, that explained some things that we are doing right now to minister, but also contained some gospel literature in, our, in, in English as well as in Spanish. 
with the intent that we get out the gospel in a spot that's kind of hard right now. We're, we're interaction, trying to keep social distancing. But something we could do that a number of our folk got involved with, that helped out, something that we pray that we're going to be able to do again in, a, in two, three weeks from now, try it again. To be able to at least reach out and to connect with some people we normally would never connect with. What are you going to do? What creative way can, can you make in getting out the gospel? Maybe the next time we do those, those boxes. You come. You get some boxes. You take that to some friend, some relative in need, so that you can share with them the love of Jesus Christ and some of that information, that literature. Maybe what you can do is you can send out a friendly email of some individuals in your class, there's not been communication, but you make and start some interaction, just reaching out, how you doing, how you doing, and starting some type of communication with those classmates, those, those college mates, those individuals that you work with that you aren't seeing, and then set the stage for you to be able to, not, to show concern and then express concern about their soul and share your testimony. Maybe you can recommend to some individuals who love to go to movies but they can't right now. You can recommend to them, hey, here's a good movie. You can even uh, make sure they get it in their hand. One that gives a clear testimony of salvation and what Christ means to them. Maybe what you can do is write a personal, handwritten, I know that most people don't even know how to do this anymore, but a handwritten note that you might be able to send to some relatives and attract and you express that interest with them and you share how you've got a peace of spirit and a comfort and a confidence because of Christ. Maybe you need to communicate with your next door neighbors. Make a phone call. Invite them to an upcoming Bible study. You know what? When we get into that phase where we're going to be able to start getting together. They're going to have limitations of how many. Maybe not how many. You can invite them over to live stream these services in your home with you so as to share the gospel or even start one of the foundation Bible studies with them so as to do some of that interaction with other individuals. Maybe what you can do is yes, several of you have told me you've done, you've got several of your co-workers listening in with us right now so that some of those who have never heard of Jesus Christ providing the confidence and the assurance uh, in this life that they're going to heaven, they're hearing about that even this moment. There's many ways you can do this. Be creative. Somehow share the word of God with individuals. Now, the text says not only do we do that in our community, in our little world, but we have to have a worldwide mission and vision to getting it out across. Now, that's a whole nother message about getting the gospel beyond our boundaries and our borders. And I'm so thankful that here at this church, so many of you have a burden and a concern about missions and missionaries that you even contributed when we weren't together to the Sacrificial Sunday. That you are praying on a regular basis for those missionaries. Keep it up. Keep it up. But let me continue with where we're at. Why are we to do this? According to this text, he says in verse 16, and we need to explore these few verses rather quickly, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. Now the positive reason is he that believes shall be saved. He that believes, there's the positive. But they can't believe unless somebody shares the word with them. Somebody must be having that, that burden to go out and to give them the good news so that they can believe, they can hear it and make a decision. You know, there's a number of people who are upset with the government right now because of some of this shutdown and some of this limits who are claiming that the government is being repressive, that has overextended itself in not allowing the businesses and saying that we, we shouldn't be meeting at this point. Whatever your position is, on the, where the government is on this, that's not the question. Let me ask you a more important question. For those of you who think the government is repressive, have you become repressive towards your neighbors and your relatives by not letting them hear the gospel? By withholding the word of God from them so they can't make a choice to be able to call upon Christ as their Savior? You and I need to be individuals that are actively giving out the gospel and letting people have choice. We ought not to be repressive by keeping the gospel to ourselves. 
there's something else that challenges me in this text. That raises questions, and I need to answer it for those of you sitting there right now and going, hey, Dad, Mom, what's this mean? He that believes and is baptized. There are some people who don't like this passage of Scripture being included in Mark because of that phrase, and is baptized shall be saved. And it's much easier if we just take the verses out than trying to explain them. Friend, we don't need to delete the verses. What we can do is just explain very quickly and very simply. Is he saying baptism saves? If you're listening this morning, you say, well, I'm going to heaven because I was baptized as a baby. This verse doesn't support that. Let me explain why. Nowhere in the Bible is baptism ever said to save an individual. Even in this verse, it's questionable the way it's worded. No verse ever says that you are getting to heaven by good works. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. And the Bible says very clearly that none of our good works are going to get us into heaven, but only whosoever believes in Jesus Christ shall be saved. In fact, the Bible says that all of our good works are as filthy rags. If we stand before God and say, well, I'm just a good enough person. I've done this and I've done that. I deserve to get into heaven. That's faulty thinking. We don't deserve to be in heaven. It's only by the grace of God that he forgives us by, for our sins. And that grace comes to us because Jesus Christ came to this earth, died, buried, and resurrected, and ascended on high so that you and I can have forgiveness because he paid for it with his life. And so never does baptism, never in Scripture. In fact, even in this passage, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. There's no baptism in that believeth not. It's not involved with damning somebody or getting somebody into heaven. Baptism or the lack thereof is not what determines somebody getting into heaven. It's all about believing. And believing in this passage is emphasized twice. He that believes, he that believeth not. Which one are you? A believer or one who is not believing in Christ, but believing in your church, believing in yourself, believing in your good works. This passage says, you who do not believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're damned already. So why does Mark bring up baptism in this verse? If baptism doesn't get us into heaven or complete our salvation, well, there's no problem with that. It's very clear that as we go through, baptism shows that you have already put your faith and trust in Christ. That's why we never baptize somebody until that individual says, and by testimony, by their own words, that they have sometime previous to their baptism, they've called upon Jesus Christ. It shows that you have already been saved. It shows what Jesus Christ has done for you. He died, buried, and resurrected. And it is the first step of public commitment, saying that you are following Jesus. So in the New Testament, after this, this commission was given, every personal account of an individual getting saved in the book of Acts, every personal account includes that person after they called upon Christ, after they got born again or saved, afterwards they followed in baptism by being put under the water and raised up to show the death, burial, and resurrection. And so he includes it because he's saying those of you who have believed... And you've shown that you are believing and following, okay? But, but that doesn't get you to heaven, but you're showing you're following Christ. He says, that's important, that's good. And it makes it very clear that baptism was important to Jesus Christ. That we include it in our message of dedication, of following Jesus Christ, of being one who is doing what he said after you've been born again. And so you and I ought not to diminish baptism or be afraid of this phrase. We just explain it in its totality and context of the other scripture that believing or not believing is determining whether you get into heaven. Baptism shows that others that you have believed and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are committed. And it was important enough to Christ for you to get baptized that he mentions it in his great commission. So we look at the passage and say, okay, the why is very clear. The positive is that you're not, that, that you're saved. The negative is that you're not damned, that you need to believe so you don't end up in hell. You know, there was a true story that came across the internet just weeks ago about a group of people out in Newport Beach, California, that some of the city, city workers as well as some bank officials were all of a sudden going through tons and tons and tons of trash. The reason they were going through the trash and they were captured in this picture of trying to sift through was because 
the Great American Bank had been given a night deposit of $42,500 from a local business. Somebody in the bank, when they were taking out those deposits, somebody accidentally put that bag of that deposited of cash, they put it in the garbage. They got taken out to the dump. And now the city worker, or the bank officials with some city workers went through the trash to find $42,500 because it was important that it was put in the bank's trust and they had misplaced that money. I understand $42,500 is a good amount of money, but I tell you what, the souls of individual are much more important than that bank deposit. That if you have not shared the gospel, you have to get out looking for ways of how to get that gospel out to individuals. Uh, I was reading about the account that many of you remember at the turn of the century. That the, the famous golfer, Payne Stewart, who was known for some of his dress and his attire, that all of a sudden he was flying from one tournament to another. And he was in his private jet. But the private jet was still maintaining its course, but they couldn't raise anybody on, on the communications. So they sent up two Air Force jets who got next to, the jets, uh, next to the private jet, and they were able to see into the windows, and they could tell that somehow, some way, something went wrong with the, uh, with the pressure within the cockpit, and everybody was passed out. The, the pilot... Later, who was on the right-hand side, he said it was one of the most traumatic experiences in his life to fly along, to try to get somebody's attention, to know that this plane was going to crash and everybody on board was going to die and I couldn't do anything about it. But I wanted to so badly, but I couldn't. My friend, your co-workers, your classmates, your neighbors, your relatives, they are going to crash one day spiritually and end up in an eternity without Christ. And you now have opportunity to do something. You need to. So the lesson out of this passage, the one is, the Lord wants you and me to help share the gospel. Can I give you a second lesson rather quickly? The second lesson is this, the Lord will help you and me to share the gospel. The Lord will help you and me to share that gospel. He says in this text, as you look at it, in some struggle because of his comments, but he says, and these signs shall follow you. That believe in my name shall they cast out devils, shall speak in new tongues, take up servants, drink any deadly thing, and it shall not hurt them. They hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick. So what he does is he talks about the signs and the wonders that are going to follow to help, and he gives a list of five specific signs or wonders that are going to show up. Now these are consistent with what happened in the New Testament. With the early spread of the gospel, God did do some of these miraculous works to help confirm that these people were from God and they were speaking the truth. In fact, we read in the book of Hebrews, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by those that heard him, the early apostles? How was it confirmed? God bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and diverse or a variety of miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So it's very clear that these things did happen. They were within the plan of God. That as the word was first getting out, that God was going to assist those who were giving out the word. And so when we look at them and say, okay, did they experience the casting out of the devils? They sure did. They sure did. Just in the book of Acts, there's multiple different occasions. Did they experience speaking in a tongue that they did not understand or study prior to getting up and giving out the gospel? They sure did at Pentecost, and they did it at a few other occasions, but then it was said to be limited as time went by, and gradually it was to pass off the scene. Did they, did they, um, did they handle serpents or the idea of touching the serpents? There, there are some who have all of a sudden gone to a point where they say, oh, this teaches that what we can do is snake handling in a church service. Friend, I am never going to do this. Never in my life. The last youth activity I did when I was youth pastor here was take the kids up to some reptile garden. And the worst thing that could have happened is the guy who was showing this big white uh, boa snake, he wanted me to put it around my neck in front of the group. No way. No way. There's no way we're handling snakes here. If we see snakes, we run. We get away from them. So what are these people doing? In fact, is this what that passage is promoting? I think not. I know not. The passage is talking about when you are going out, giving out the gospel. 
that there's going to be protection given. It is not talking about in a church service. Let's see who has the most faith. Let's see who can handle the most snakes. That is a violation of Matthew 4 where we're tempting the Lord God and wanting to leap off of the temple top just to see if God will protect us. And Jesus had said to Satan when he did such silly, uh, silly temptation, get away from me. We ought not to tempt the Lord God. So what are we talking about, this touching serpents? Probably exactly what happened in the book of Acts. When Paul was landed on that isle and the snake, all of a sudden the viper bit him and God protected (coughs) so that he didn't succumb to the poison of the snake which allowed him to share the gospel with Publius and others in that island who ended up getting saved. The drinking poison, we have no incident in the book of Acts that says that they uh, they were attacked, they were given poison to kill them. However, we do know that one of the early church writers wrote about Justice who was one of those that was considered for the replacement office of uh, apostle in Acts chapter uh, 1 and 2 where we read about in history that justice was made to drink poison and nothing happened to him as far as the persecution. And what about the healing of the sick? We know that that happened frequently in the early days. But again, just like tongues, towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul could no longer even cure Epaphroditus of his illness because as the completed word of God came into being, then those miraculous signs were no longer needed. But what is the point of the passage? Okay, The point of the text is telling us that God helped getting out the gospel. Does he still help today? Yeah, he does. He says, all power is given unto me, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. How does God help? Hmm. I was thinking about John Patton, for instance. John Patton went to the New Hebrides, and he was giving the gospel to those cannibals down there. And they came into one village, and the witch doctors, they were, they were going to curse him, they said. They were going to have him dead within the next few days. And they said all they needed to do was they would need something, that, some fruit that he had bitten into. So to accommodate them, he bit into the five different mangoes that were nearby, handed each one to one of the five different witch doctors and said, I'll come back on Sunday. They said, no, you won't. You're going to be dead. Come Sunday morning, here he comes, marching in. Despite all their incantations, the witch doctors were dumbfounded. The people now, they were, they were interested in hearing what he said. Eventually, several of those witch doctors as well as many in the village got saved. Does God do that type of thing today? Does God protect? Does God enhance the gospel? Does God all of a sudden make wells, shoot water? Well, when we talk about our Indian native uh, pastors that were helping, there's accounts that they write about. All of a sudden, in an arid area that they couldn't find water, all of a sudden, one of the wells that they dug for a village all of a sudden produces the well. We have account after account how the Lord, he just works in a phenomenal way to get out the word to help us to do that. The reason being is he wants us to get out the word and he'll help us to share the word. You and I, you and I should not keep this good news to ourselves. I was reading the true story of Fritz Chrysler. World, Chrysler was a world famous uh, violinist. And he, one of the things he wanted to do was collect violins. And because oftentimes he was so charitable, he didn't have as much money as he needed to purchase uh, a violin, a rare violin, as, as suddenly as he found it. And he found one that he considered to be the best find ever. And so he, after a period of months and months, he raised the, mon- the amount of money that the man told him that he would want in order to purchase that violin. But by the time he had raised the money and gone back to that man, that man said, I'm sorry, a collector came by and he met the, the amount of money quickly with cash and so I sold it. So Chrysler goes and finds who, where that collector is. He goes to his house and he offers to buy the violin. The collector said, no, no. He says, I'm a collector. I want that. I'm not going to part with it. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Since you and I know who you are and how good you are, uh, I'll let you play the violin. I'll give you one hour you can play the violin. You can do a a private uh, uh, concert for me. And so there he was, Chrysler is playing this precious violin. He's playing for that collector at the end of it. The collector was so moved by Chrysler's ability and the sound of that priceless violin that he made this comment to Chrysler. I have no right to keep it to myself. It's yours. Use it for the world to enjoy. My friend... You have no right to keep the priceless gospel to yourself. 
Jesus Christ told you and me, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You need to do that.